Well, today we're talking about the triumphal entry of Jesus. It's, it's, it's Palm Sunday, everybody. And, and what I want to do is, is try to help us understand the heart of God in what was taking place on this very important day, Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Everyone came out waving palm branches. I want you to, from this moment on, understand the reality of what was going on behind the scenes, the reality of what was going on within God's heart. I want to get you to a place where you have a, a really good picture in your heart and mind of that day and what that day means for you and I. Okay, deal? Everybody with me? That's where we're going to. Amen? Amen. This moment here, the triumphal entry of Jesus, is, is brought to us in, in all four Gospels. So not every not every um, event of the Passion Week, of the last week of Jesus' life, is in all four Gospels. This one is, all right? So if God puts something in all four Gospels, it's like a parent repeating themselves. Like, you got to, like, pay attention to that. You know, like, that's a very important thing. If, if your dad told you something and then told you that something again, and remember son, remember daughter, and told you again, like, that's something you want to pay attention to. Amen? And that, that's what Jesus is doing here, the the. The triumphal entry of Jesus is in all of, these, all of these Gospels. And we read it together over in the book of Matthew, chapter 21. If you guys turn in your Bibles over to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, we start in verse 1. And this is what it tells us in Matthew 21, 1. It says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied to a tied donkey tied in a colt with her. And Jesus tells his two disciples to loosen them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, "The Lord has need of them." And immediately they will send them. And this was all done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, "Tell the daughter of Zion." This is a prophecy written. Hundreds of years before the coming of Jesus, hundreds of years before this moment, okay? And here's the prophecy. It's, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, they laid their clothes on them, and they set him on them. Now, now let me set the scene for you a bit. It is Passover feast, and during Passover, millions, millions of Jews would gather together in, in Jerusalem. Josephus, that, who is a secular historian, tells us that there was about 256,000 lambs that were slaughtered and sacrificed during this identical day that Jesus was about to ride into the temple. So you do some quick math, 256,000 lambs. Uh, one, it was a, a minimum of one lamb for every 10 people. So right now in Jerusalem, just making sacrifices alone, there's about two to two and a half million people, okay? So two to two and a half million people crammed into a space, by the way, that typically had about five to 600,000. So this is, this is, this is chaos, right? 
And if you've been to Jerusalem, if you've actually um, been on a trip to Jerusalem, I mean, if you haven't, you need to go. We're going to do another trip, and you guys got to go. It's the wildest thing to walk around those beautiful streets. But to think about that, packed with two and a half million people, come on somebody. It is worse than downtown Disney after the, for, after the fireworks. You know what I'm talking about? Like the, everyone packs in for the fireworks, and then they're done. It snows, and you're like, what do we do now? This is crazy. They turn the lights on. It's just people everywhere. Well, that's how occupied Jerusalem is at, at this point. The Jews at this time are under Roman oppression. Rome had conquered the land, and Rome now is causing, is causing the Jews to live in oppression. So they've taken from them their national identity. They're not very sensitive to their religious practices, and so it's very hard for the Jews to, to have the freedom to worship God in the way they want to because the Romans are really insensitive to their religious practices. Um, they've imposed heavy taxation on, on the Jewish people. So the Jews are having to pay taxes for any, no one likes taxes, everybody, right? But they're paying lots of taxes on everything. So there's this, there's this oppression. Now watch. If you were to interview any one of these two and a half million Jews, and you would say, you know, um, what is the one thing that you feel like would make life better? They'd say, overthrow the Roman government. Like, if we can get rid of the Romans, if we can get rid of the, this Roman oppression, oh, then we'd finally be free. Then things would make sense. Then, then we'd be able to live the way we want to live. Then we would experience everything that we know God wants to give us. And you could walk up to anyone. It was on the forefront of everybody's mind. How in the world, when in the world, are we going to finally overthrow the Roman government? When are we going to overthrow the Romans? When are we going to take this town, right, is what they would say to themselves. You know, I think it's interesting. A lot of us actually have our, our own Rome, as you would. We have our own issues that we think, man, if this got dealt with, if, if this situation would change, if, if God would just answer that prayer. I mean, and they've been praying, God, please. If, if this situation would change, then then everything would just get better in my life. And it's the thing. Come on, put it in your mind right now. You need to get it there in order for the power of what we're about to walk through together, in order for that to, to hit you in the way that I believe the Spirit of God wants to, to speak to you today. Like, what is the thing that if I was to interview you and say, come on, pick it, if this one thing would change, what, what would it be? You know, what, what is oppressing? You know, for, for, I was thinking about, like, myself, like, going, God, I, I feel like if, if you would just, if our church could get ourselves a building, come on, you know what I mean? Like if we, if we could have a facility that we could call our own, stop messing around with all these lighting issues, stop messing around with all this. If we could, you know, take all the energy that we're putting in to set up and tear down and, and put that into other places. If we could, gosh, Lord, if, if, if that's the thing, God, if, that, it, it's oppressing me, right? It's oppressing us, Lord. I, like we could really live if, right? And you put that at the front of your, your, your prayer request and, I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's like a, a relationship thing, a finance thing. A, get that thing, right? That thing that's in, in front of you. And you're, God, God I, I need you to go deal with that. Well, this is where the Jews are. They've got their thing that they need God to deal with. And then you add to that the fact that there's these biblical prophecies that speak about what they call a Messiah that would someday come and actually liberate them 
and bring them freedom, okay? So they have, every time they read scripture, there's these promises of God that they're holding on to that, that they're applying to their situation now going, God is going to liberate us someday from these Romans. God is going to deal with this issue, and it's just a matter of time. It's just a, it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. God is going to send the one. And then you add to that the fact that there's this guy named Jesus. And there's been a lot of news about Jesus at this time. There's a, there's a lot of people that are, have been watching this guy, Jesus. And there's a rumor going around that maybe Jesus is this Messiah. Maybe Jesus is the one that's finally going to liberate us from that one thing. God, would you deal with that one thing? Would you get rid of the Romans? Finally, we're going to have our own national identity again. Finally, we're going to be able to worship God in the way that, that we believe God's called us to worship. Finally, we're going to get to that spot. And they're all thinking that maybe it's Jesus. Because my goodness, if the guy can turn water to wine, I think he could ha handle a little, little Roman, you know? Like, and then to add to that, and I, I, think, I think this is incredible. It's a, a week before this moment that, that we just read, Jesus just did a miracle in Bethphage, which is about... Uh, about two miles, two and a half miles out of Jerusalem, it's the miracle of w raising Lazarus from the dead. And how many of you know that that news spread real quick, right? All through the region. And so now you take all this stuff that's swirling together. They want to be liberated. They, th they believe there's a Messiah coming. Scripture speaks of a Messiah. Then there's this Jesus. And everybody's thinking, maybe Jesus is the one. He's got to be the one. Matter of fact, on several occasions... They actually try to take Jesus by force and make him their king. And whenever they came to do it, it says that Jesus would say that it was not yet his time and he would slip away and they wouldn't be able to find him. But they were constantly going, it's got to be Jesus, it's got to be Jesus. Messianic expectation is high and everybody is waiting on Jesus. Now, with all of that going on, Jesus is walking from Bethphage to Jerusalem. They've done it a hundred times. They've done it over and over again. But this time, Jesus stops along the road and he turns to his disciples and he says, listen, I need two of you to go in and get for me a colt. You're going to find a donkey and a colt tied. I want you to bring me that colt. And this time when I go into Jerusalem, we're not just going to walk in like we've done in times past. I'm going to ride in on a colt. I want two of you to go. Why did Jesus send two? Like, that's a job, like, one, one person can handle that. That's not too complex, right? Go in, get the colt, bring it to Jesus. Jesus sent two. I think he sent two on purpose. Why? Get him talking. Jesus sent us to get it. Isn't there a prophecy? There's a prophecy about Jesus, that the Messiah is going to ride in on a, on a, on a colt, and, and Jesus just asked us to get a colt. Could this be? And on their way there, I think that they're telling people, Jesus just told us to get a colt. It's like, Jesus, the one everyone thinks is the Messiah, he just told us, like, it's go time, everybody. Like, like we're going to take the city. We're going to, they go and they, they get the colt, and when they go to get the colt, you always think to yourself, why was it so easy to get the colt? Because everybody is waiting for Rome to be overthrown. Everybody knows that the Messiah is going to come in riding on a colt. Everyone knows. So when they say, hey, um, we need that, the guy's like, who do you think you are taking my colt? The master has need of him. Oh, please, yeah, take the colt. Take the colt. And there's this expectation. So they bring the colt to Jesus. They lay their clothes over the colt. And Jesus sits upon this colt and begins to ride toward Jerusalem. News now the fact that Jesus is 
riding toward Jerusalem on a colt, begins to spread through the city. And here's what we read in Matthew 21, 8 through 10. It says, in a very great multitude, yeah, no kidding, there's two to two and a half million Jews. That's a lot of people. A very great multitude spread out their clothes on the road, and others tore down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the multitudes who went before him and those who followed out cried out, saying, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had gone into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Millions of people in the city. Hundreds of thousands are now coming out to meet Jesus as he's riding on this donkey toward the gates of Jerusalem. There's a crowd following him from Bethphage, and there's a crowd coming out of Jerusalem to meet him. And as they do, they're crying out, Hosanna. Well, what in the world does that mean? It means save now. It means let's do this. It means let's go to war. Let's take down the Romans. They go and they grab palm branches. It's so funny, you know, we did these these things, if you grew up in, how many grew up in church? You grew up in church, you know, and the kids come in and they got the palm branches and they're waving them and they're placing them on the ground and they're doing this whole thing. You know what the palm branches were? The palm branches were a sign of national identity for the Jews. Matter of fact, if you go back in the ancient time, you find ancient coins, they were stamped with, guess what, a, a palm. It was like their flag. And so as Jesus is riding into town, they're waving their, they're waving their flags. It's like we're going to war. We're going to put down our national identity once and for all in this ground once again. Matter of fact, it, the waving of palm branches was forbidden by Romans at that time. It was illegal because it would, it would, it would bring within the Jews this national pride and identity, and they, they didn't want that. And so against what the Roman government would tell them and against, you know, what, what uh, would, I mean, some would say even wise, you're going against the Romans. They stand behind Jesus and they begin to wave the flag. They're laying down the palm branches and they're paving the way for Jesus to go in and once and for all take down the Romans. Once and for all deal with the issue Fix the thing. Get it off of us, God. Move the circumstance. Change the situation. Answer the promises, as, that, the promises that you've been giving us, the promises of your word. Some of you feel like that today. You're like, Jesus, I know you're going to answer the promise. Come right in. <laughs> come, come deal with my issue. Come, come deal with the problem. And Jesus comes riding in toward the temple. Save now. Let's do this. What does Jesus do? Pay close attention. Jesus gets to the walls of Jerusalem, and everyone's thinking that he's going to ride to, like, the, the Roman capital, you know, like, wherever the Roman um, leader might be living at that time. Call him out. I claim this city is ours, or something, you know. But, but, but what does Jesus do? Matthew chapter 21, watch this, verse 12. Jesus went into the temple. Everyone's following. And Jesus goes where? Into the 
temple? Jesus goes to the temple. I thought Jesus was going to go to deal with the Romans, which is the big issue that everyone needs him to deal with. But Jesus doesn't go to the Romans. He goes to the, someone say temple. He goes to the temple. Before he goes to the town, he goes to the, to the temple. What's the temple? The temple, look at me, it's the center of Jewish life. It's the, everything revolves around the temple if you're a Jew. Your, your religious life revolves around the temple. Your, your, your um, relational, you know, community life revolves around the temple. When the, the Jews would hold court, it would happen at the temple. Everything about Jewish life would happen at the temple. And so here they are thinking God needs to go deal with that issue. God, go to the town. But God says, Jesus is like, I'm not going to the town. First, we're going to go to the temple. You know, the, body, the Bible says that, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I think a lot of times we're expecting God to go to the town. God to deal with that issue. God to deal with this issue. God to finally get us, you know, that building. And God to finally, we're, we got all these prayers. And that's great. We should be praying those things. But I need you to understand this morning that God is not always looking at what you're looking at. God is not always as concerned about the things you're concerned about. God's actually concerned about some other things. God is up to more than you think. God is actually doing a deeper work than you would expect. And often when we feel oppressed by the Romans, oppressed by a circumstance or a situation that's not changing, we're praying that God would change the situation, the circumstance, but God actually is allowing the circumstance to continue because he's going to, in the midst of the circumstance, not go to the town, but go to the temple. He's not going to do a work out there yet. He's going to start with a work in here first. He goes to the temple. You know, Jesus is always going to the temple first. Verse 12, I think, says this. We bring it back up, bring up. Jesus went to the temple of God, and he drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. God still today first works in the temple. And the sooner you realize that, look at me, the better. See, we're thinking, God, the speck in their eye. God, have you, how come they got this thing in their eye and they got a problem right there and got the speck in their eye? What does scripture do? What about the plank in yours? What does God always do? We're thinking about them. God's always concerned about you. God God, the, the chaos, all the chaos. And God goes, okay, I see the chaos, but can we talk about your character? And in the middle of the chaos, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the chaos to, to shape your character. God, God, all this hassle. God, all this hassle. God says, I just want to keep dealing with your heart in the middle of all the hassle. You see what I'm saying? He thinks on a different level than, than we think. And you have to trust him. He might not be going to the town yet. He's always going to the temple first. He's going, always going 
here first. Let, let me give you one more, one more example. Because you're looking at me like, wait, okay, all right. Jer Jeremiah, in, in the book of Jeremiah chapter 12, Jeremiah is very frustrated with God. Because there's all of these, like, there's all of these um, very ungodly people that are wildly successful. And, and they have money. It would look like they're successful. And Jeremiah's complaining to God. He's like, God, how come the wicked are prospering? And how come this? And, and how come that? And he's just so frustrated. God, how come, how come we don't have a building yet? And how come this hasn't changed? And how come all this? And, and I want you to see what God says to him. Watch. God says, I, I see the issues but I need you to know we're not going to go to the town. We're going to go to the temple. We're not going to deal with that right now. We're going to deal with you. God, if God, let me say it this way. If God isn't dealing with that yet, it's because he's dealing with you right now. Does that make sense? If he hasn't moved there, it's because he's still not done moving here. Right? And so watch what says to Jeremiah 12. He's complaining. And God says to him, Jeremiah, if you've run with the footmen and, you've, and they've wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? He says, if, if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, how will you do at the floodplain of the Jordan? He's saying, Jer Jeremiah, listen. I've created you to run with horses. And someday you're going to go faster and, and further than you've ever imagined. You're going to do more than, than you could have ever comprehended. But if you can't walk with the footmen, you're never going to run with the horses. And I'm going to leave you here learning to walk with the footmen. Keep up with the footmen so that someday you can run with the horses. You, my friends, is, is God is at work in you right now in this situation, you see. I'm leaving you here, Jeremiah. I'm producing something in you that's going to prepare you for this next season. Because, listen, you will. You will run with the horses. Citizens, you will run with the horses. Friends, individual, look at me. You will run with the horses. Friends, look at me. God sees more than you see. He sees greater things for you than you see for yourself. And you're thinking in order to get to the great thing, God has to deal with that thing. But as we move toward the great thing that God has for each of us and as a church, we have to let God continue to deal with this thing. Just like I keep my heart right. God, I'll worship you wherever you put us. God, we'll give it our all no matter what's going on. God, no matter what a, what a relationship might look like or not look like, I'm going to keep my heart pure in the midst of it. I'm not going to let myself get, get bitter in the midst of it. God, in the middle of, of something horrendous that has happened to me, I'm going to learn right now, God. I know they need some fixing, and I know they've got their own issues. But God, while we're waiting for that to be dealt with, I, would you just continue to deal with me? God, teach me forgiveness. God, teach me mercy. God, teach me grace. But they, they haven't said they're sorry yet. You know, it's not a Bible verse. Forgive them when they say they're sorry. It's not a Bible verse. The Bible says, forgive as you've been forgiven. Anyone been forgiven in here? Of a lot. Of a lot. Amen. And so, God, if he's not dealing with that, it means he's still dealing with this. And it's not in a negative way. Listen, it's not negative. He's strengthening you because there's actually more inside of you. There's actually more he has for you. And so as a church, God's strengthening us. I mean, we're going we're gonna to run with horses. And so we got to let the strength of the season rest on us.
You need to let the strength of the season be built up inside of you and realize, look, it's not going to happen if you're constantly going, oh, oh God, if you would just, and, and you get before God and go, okay, you're not going to go to the town yet. You're going to come to the temple. You're going to come to the temple. You're going to come to the temple. And so God is looking at things a little bit different than, than we are. He shows up at the temple, and, and I, want to, I want you to see what he does. This drives down into an, into an individual application. When Jesus shows up to the temple, do you notice where he goes? He shows up to the temple, and he goes to the tables. And at the tables, he starts overturning the table. Like Jesus starts like rearranging the furniture within, within the temple. He's like, that doesn't belong here, and this should have never been here, and that needs to get out of here. And Jesus doesn't go to the town. He goes to the temple, and when he gets to the temple, he goes to the tables. What do the tables represent? Anything within our temple that doesn't belong within our temple. Anything we've allowed to sit in the temple that should have never been in the temple. Anything that we've justified in our lives that should never be in our lives. You see, God is after the purity of the temple, the holiness, the set-apartedness is what that means, of the temple. And so in the temple on that day, there, was, there had become these tables. And if you think of, this is in the, this is in the outer court. It's the court of the Gentiles. And it's a, it's a square that's larger than a football field, if you can imagine. Just a big square, massive. And around the square are these, these huge pillars that are set up to support the, the wall and the, and the trappings of the temple. And in between the pillars, these tables had been set up. And at these tables, there's all sorts of business happening, right? There's, there's um, well, there's the exchange of money taking place. So when you would show up to worship God at the temple, you, they would say you could only worship God with the, with the temple coin or with the, the coin of that um, area. So if you've traveled from another area and you've got your own your own currency, you'd go to worship God with your money, and they'd go, ah, I'm sorry, we don't, we don't take American Express here, you know, I'm sorry, we don't, you know, actually, we don't, we don't, we don't take euros, you know, I'm so sorry, you're gonna, you have to get that exchange, like, oh, okay, so then you go over there to get it exchanged, and show up to one of these tables, and you go to exchange it, and then as you exchange it, they, they charge an enormous fee, and so now they're making money off my desire to worship God, and the money's not going back toward the temple, it's going back into their pockets, and all these money changes are, it's like making all this money, right? And so now you go and you, you exchange it, and you finally have your money, and, and then you're like, okay, I'm going to, well, with my money, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go worship God now, okay? And that's happening at the, at the tables. Also at the tables, they're, they're, um, they're selling turtle doves. If you were poor, you were able to offer to God a turtle dove. They cost a little less than a lamb. And uh, it's really hard to travel with turtle doves. Go figure. And so um, when they'd get there, they didn't have turtle doves. And maybe the offering they wanted to give God was not just a temple tax or temple money. They wanted to give God a, a turtle dove. So you go to buy a turtle dove. And again, sorry, can't take that, that coin. You're going to have to go. They go to the exchange. And then they go to buy the turtle dove. And they cost a little bit more here inside the temple than they did in Bethpage just a couple miles over. And you're like, we should have bought one in Bethpage. Why didn't we, we, sh we should have known gas was going to be more in California. I mean, we should have known. Like, we should have filled up just before we got in. And, 
And that's what they're thinking to themselves. But, well, we don't want to walk all the way. So, okay, we'll pay you this exorbitant amount for, for this turtle dove. And you see, all this is happening all around the temple. Uh, you, you, maybe you make the whole journey with a lamb. And the Bible tells us that when you were to offer to God a lamb, you would offer him your best. The Bible says do not offer to anything to God that didn't cost you something. God, God requires sacrifice. In other words, it's like, it's like people are like, I gave a lot. It's like, no, actually that was in comparison to others maybe. But what God is wanting you to do is to trust him with your best. And so these families would go and they would take like the best of their, of their lambs. And they would bring them to the temple. And they'd get to the temple. And what would happen, this is literally going on in the temple. They'd bring them to the temple and get ready to offer unto God this, this sacrifice. And they would, the priest would check the lamb. Ah, ah, this one isn't, this one, this one isn't temple approved. This one's got some issues. But you're like, it's my best. That's all God wanted was your best. They're like, well, this isn't as good as, I mean, we're talking about offering to God here. And so, unfortunately, we can't accept your lamb. But, you know, lucky for you, we do have an area over here, this table, pre-approved lambs, okay? Like, right here, like, temple approved, you go buy them. They do cost a little extra. Do you see what's going on all over the temple? Now, what was a temple supposed to be? It's supposed to be a house of joy, praise, a house of prayer. What did the temple become? Noise. It's just chaos. It's just... There's stuff in there that shouldn't be in there, and it's all out of sorts, and, and there's just kind of noise everywhere. And so Jesus walks into what should be a place of joy, a place where people meet with God, a place where he's the center. Should be prayer, but it's chaos. There's noise everywhere. Money's being exchanged, and man, lambs are going, and just like it's just like it's just chaos everywhere. And these poor people are trying to. And Jesus walks in, and he sees it all. And not only does he go to the temple, he walks over to the tables, and he's like, "Not," he says, "Not in my house." Not in my house. And he's, he's throwing tables everywhere. And there's change flying everywhere. And if you were walking up to the temple that day to go worship God, there would be in that moment a whole herd of people and, and animals and running out of the temple as Jesus is in the back going, not in my house. This is not what it's meant to be. You have turned my father's house, he says, into a den of thieves. And Jesus begins to rearrange some furniture. You know, I wonder what tables we've allowed in our lives. Okay, the tables. God wants to talk to you about the tables. The tables in our lives are anything that we've allowed in our life that was never meant to be in our life, that God doesn't desire in our heart, in our thoughts, in our actions. Maybe it's a, it's a table of, you got a little attitude, you know, because, I mean, man, they, they've done this, and they, someone's done that, and, and now you got, a, you got an attitude with some people. Maybe you got an attitude with God, and it's like, God, it's your fault, and I can't believe, and you know, you're just getting angry with God, and instead of having a tender heart toward God, your heart has now been blaming God on some things, and you got yourself a little attitude. Some of you, it's, some of you got some tables of pride inside of you. 
It's all about you. Everything's about you. I mean, people get around you and you, you always draw it to yourself. You always make, you're not building other people up. You see other people there to, to build you. And you walk around, you just got this, this pride inside you. You've let it to, that settle down in, inside your heart and, it, and it, it doesn't belong there. For others, it's again, we talk about unforgiveness. Like God, man, God has forgiven you of so much and you're not turning around and pouring out that forgiveness on the people around you. And some of you, I mean, selfishness is settled in. Some of you, you got a table of, it's a table of, it's the place where you're finding your identity in things that you've never meant to find your identity in. So you think your identity is found in your job. You think your identity is found in like your bank account. You think your identity is found in, and you've allowed other things to take that place where God says, no, your identity is meant to be found in me. And me alone, I, I'm your all in all. Well, God, I don't have as much, Jeremiah. I don't have as much as they do. Well, that's not your identity. Your identity is you are my child. So what's the table that you've allowed in your life? Maybe it's the table of doubt. You've been doubting God, like, God, if you really love me, you deal with the Romans. God, if you really, you know, like, it's a table of doubt. Like, what? What are the different tables you've allowed in your life? God desires for in the center of who you are, there to be a separation from those things, that those things would be cleansed from your life. And, and in its place, there would be joy. And in its place, there would be prayer. And in its place would be God at the center of it all. And what Jesus is doing in the temple is resetting the temple to bring it back to the place where this is just all about God. It's just all about who he is and what he wants to do in me at this moment. And so God, would you get rid of anything else that doesn't belong in my life so that you could be once and for all the center of my life. Some of you think to yourself, but I got a good reason for setting up that table. I got a good reason to have this attitude. And I got a good reason to, listen, do you want to hold on to your reason? Or do you want to experience the joy that God actually intends for there to be inside your heart? You can hold on to your reason all day. But you'll never actually experience the peace that God wants to give you. So you may need to let go of your reason. And let God actually deal with your, with your issue. Jesus says he's going to cleanse it out. He's going to bring it back. So friends, it's the worship team comes up, I think there's a lot of us that need to let God cleanse it out. You need to let God bring it back. You know, one of the things we do at Citizens Church, like our whole heartbeat, is just to help people bring it back. Hey, just bring it back. <laughs> bring it back. Come on, you're letting, you're letting some tables get set up. You're letting some things start to happen inside your life, inside your heart that, that shouldn't be here. And God just goes, hey, today we just want to bring it back. Many refer to this moment in the temple, as we close, as the cleansing of the temple, right? The cleansing of the temple. It's a washing of the temple, and it's exactly what God wants to do in our hearts and lives today. And when God cleanses the temple, when he washes the temple, the temple now can move back to what is intended for. The temple now, watch, can experience... What God intended for those at the temple to experience. But they couldn't follow. 
They couldn't experience what God wanted them to experience in the temple that day until Jesus cleansed it of everything that shouldn't be there. So what happened as Jesus cleansed the temple that day? In Matthew chapter 21, verse 14, I think it's very interesting that the very next thing that Jesus does in the temple, it says this, then, someone say then, then, when then? Then after all the tables had been cleansed out, then after all the money changers had been chased off, then after all the noise had been calmed down, then after God had been given his rightful spot within the place that he was meant to be, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Oh, church. Jesus wants to heal you of all the noise, chaos in your life. He wants to, he wants to heal all the issues around your life. But before he can heal them, he first has to cleanse you. See? Because, do, do you remember when the, the paralytic was let down through the roof? Some of you know this story, remember? Like, Jesus healed him, he can't walk. Like, it's the most important thing. This guy needs to walk, he needs to walk. Jesus healed him, he gotta, he gotta walk. And the very first thing Jesus does is this guy's being lowered down through the ceiling. Jesus goes, son, your sins are forgiven you. And I was like, I don't know, I, that's important, but he needs to walk, right? And Jesus goes, no, you don't, see, he doesn't think like you think. He doesn't think like I think. The most important thing, in order for that man who's crippled to, to really experience what he needs to experience, to experience joy, to experience peace, to, to experience everything he's missing, it's not that he'd walk. It's that he would walk with God. And so first he says, your sins are forgiven you. And everyone's like, wow, what gives you the power to say his sins are forgiven? He's like, oh, you want to see the power? Rise, take up your bed and walk. That was just proof that he could actually forgive sins. You see what I'm saying? So it's the same thing here. God, heal the land of my life. God, heal the land of California, Jesus' name, amen. God, heal our nation. Where does God first go? To his people. And he wants to bring healing to his people, the cleansing of, of his house. Like, God first deals with us. God, bring revival to the nation. You need to draw a circle around your life and say, God, first bring revival to me. And I tell you, if we would let God continue to cleanse us, to heal us, to bring us to that place where the tables have been, been torn down, they've been turned over, and all that remains is what is meant to remain, just, man, I, a life where God is at the center, a church where God continues to stay at the center of people, his, his people that keep him at the center and keep our lives yielded to his work in our life. Once we allow for the cleansing, then God overflows the temple and brings the, the healing, right? The healing. Some of you have some tables in your life that you're thinking to yourself as we're having this conversation. You're thinking to yourself, Pastor Chris, you don't get it. This table in my life is bolted to the floor. Like, 
I've been dealing with this thing in my life, these insecurities, that addiction, this relationship problem. I've been dealing with insecurities. I, I've been dealing with these things my whole life. It's bolted to the floor. There's no way this table is going to ever be turned. I'm always going to deal. Come on, that issue, that issue. So I got your eyes off all those issues, and now you're looking at this issue inside of you, and you're like, yeah, now that's not changing. So you say, I've always been this way. I got good news for you. you. You know, this isn't the first time that Jesus overturned tables in the temple. It's actually the second time. The very first time that Jesus overturned tables in the temple is recorded for us over in the book of John. And I want to show it to you in the book of John. As Jesus is tossing the tables the first time, his disciples remember what was written in a prophecy. The zeal for your house will consume me. You know that it's, it's his love that wants to turn those tables in the heart of the church, in the heart of the individual. It's, it's God's love for you that wants to just, just to rearrange some furniture in your life, right? Disciples remember that and, and watch what happens with the Jews. The Jews standing nearby said to him, what sign do you show that you have the authority to do these things? Jesus walks to the temple, he's throwing tables, and these guys are like, who do you think you are? Like, what gives you the right to do this? Jesus answered and he said to them, you want to know what right I have or what power I have to turn the tables in your life? You want to know what power I have to turn the things that you think are bolted to the floor and can never be turned? You want to know what power I have? Jesus says this, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And everyone's looking around going like, this temple? The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus says this, you want to know what power I have to deal with the tables in your life that you feel like can never be turned? You want to know what power I have to do the things within the church that need to be done? You want to know the power of God? He says, then you look at the power of God that rose Jesus from the grave. The power of God that defeated death. The power of God that turned the tables on death. It's the very same power of God that can turn the tables in your life. Did you hear me? He turned the tables on death. He could turn the tables in your life. Death is man's greatest foe. She said, I beat it. If I beat death, I can handle anything that you're facing in your life today. The trick, the key, the response is you just got to let him. You just got to ask him. You just got to Jesus, I've been trying to deal with this table. I want to invite you to deal with the table. God, I want to invite you to cleanse. God, I want to invite you to this table today. And just do your thing, God. I'm not going to hold on. I'm not going to try to be in control. God, I'm just going to surrender. And let you do your thing. Let you have your way. So Jesus, my friends, he sees all the stuff out there. But before he goes to the town, he's going to go to the temple. And at the temple, he's always looking for the tables. It's going to keep us pure. It's going to keep us holy. And when we're in that place, there is joy and there is peace. You just ask him, friends. In Jesus' name.